in the book of James, James chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 7, we'll read all the way to verse 18, but our text in particular is verses 13 through 18. Before I read the text, I wanted to read a short quote. This is from a dear sister in, in Christ, Karen Ellis. She uh, teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, and much of her studies is about the persecuted church and how they persevere in faith, and so she speaks a lot about prayer. And this is just a little bit of one of her writings on prayer. She said, turning to prayer can feel pedantic in a world that treats the term radical so loosely. The New Testament depicts nothing so radical as a kingdom-centered body of believers grabbing hold of the glory of God and saturating their communities with it. We've been conditioned to believe that prayer must be accompanied by action, but prayer in God's economy is action. It's just an intro to get us, get us thinking. Of course, what she says is simply a short retelling of what we find in the scriptures. And so our most powerful reminder comes today from the book of James, chapter 5. I'll begin reading at verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's look to God in prayer. Lord God, would you work by the power of your word and the power of your spirit at work in our hearts and minds that we would indeed believe the glorious promise of the gospel, that we would be strengthened to keep your commandments, 
and that we would be encouraged in prayer, knowing that the prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this letter, James writes about the messiness and the difficulty and the hard labor that is Christian living in a fallen world. What he describes in this letter, what he prescribes for the church is hard labor for believers. He writes about trials and temptations which surely come to the people of God. He calls us to patient endurance and perseverance in the midst of trials and tribulations. And if you read this letter and slow down and allow the words to sink into your soul, you know that there are many hard words in this letter because it touches on those struggles with sin that are so common to all of us. How we use the tongue to hurt rather than to love. Our temptation to partiality and to put some in a place of prominence and others not so much. And we know that warning that we find in the book of James about what it is to be a fool, the kind of person who looks in a mirror and immediately forgets what they've seen. In other words, those who read God's word and consider it and profess that they believe it, but do not live in the way that the word calls them to live. Lots of hard words in the book of James and words that we need to hear. But it's interesting to note that in the midst of all of that, the letter begins and ends in the same way, with two things, patience and prayer. Look at this, the very beginning of this letter. You remember how Paul writes letters. He begins with introductions that, that tell them about the glories of their God and encourage them in their faith before he gets to instruction. But James just cuts right to the chase in verse 2. Chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Count it all joy, because you know you'll face trials. And even in the midst of those trials, you can rejoice. He goes on to say, as you endure in the midst of trials, let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I would guess that anyone who reads those verses and pays careful attention gets to the end of verse 4 and says, how is it even possible to live in that way, to respond in trials in that way, to count it all joy when the Lord tests me and tries me? And then James gives you the answer in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. How can you live with patient endurance? Pray. And he ends the letter in the same way. Verse 7, he describes what it's like to wait for the coming of the Lord, that great and glorious day to which we all look forward as we, as we walk and our, walk our pilgrimage through a world broken by sin. How do we patiently endure? He calls us to that kind of patient endurance as we wait for the Lord's coming. In fact, He uses three different words, all of them related to patience, and seven different times in those few verses. He tells us to be patient, to wait, 
to endure. And again, you ask yourself the question, how? How can I patiently endure in the midst of such difficulty in this world? And then, I think not by accident, seven times, he tells us to pray. James knew what it meant to walk with the living Christ. He did it, his brother. He knew what it meant to walk with the risen Christ. You remember his story that for most of Jesus' life, he didn't believe it. You're not the Savior. You're not the Messiah. And then the Lord worked faith in him, and he knew Jesus to be the Savior and the Messiah. And he responded in faith and obedience so that he was often known as James the Righteous. That's what he's been known as throughout the history of the church. But he had another name, a nickname, if you will, that um, maybe doesn't sound quite so glamorous. He was the man with camel knees. He was constant in worship, constant in prayer, on his knees, crying out to God for forgiveness and strength to live the Christian life, on his knees so much that they were calloused and bent. And he encourages us then that if we are to live with patient endurance, if we are to endure as we wait for the coming of the Lord, that we can do it by prayer. That we in prayer experience the power of the risen Christ and that through prayer the Lord brings spiritual cleansing and physical healing in your life and in the life of the church. He calls us to pray. And we'll see four different ways or contexts of prayer in this passage. We'll see praying Christians. We'll see praying elders. We'll see a praying church and a praying prophet. But first of all, we need to answer the question, what is the prayer of faith? Look at verse 15. It says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The prayer of faith. This particular verse has been abused and misused throughout the life of the church to promote all sorts of religious rituals that have very little or nothing to do with this verse. You maybe know them if you've grown up in other uh, traditions. There's the more formal response of the sense of a priest to whom you confess your sins and he absolves you of last rites that provide you some kind of hope as you pass from this life into the next life. And of course, on the other hand, you have ideas like a a name it and claim it, faith healing, prayer of faith, kind of health and wealth gospel that if you name it and claim it, uh, your prayer forces God's hand. He has to do exactly what you asked him to do. You see how those those different misuses put the power of prayer in our hands, that somehow we can require God to do something, we can force God uh, to do something, but that's not what's being described here, is it? What is the prayer of faith? James has already explained it to us in the very first chapter of this letter. Look again at verse 5 and of chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, first of all, we have to wrestle with what he means 
without doubting. Understand that he's not saying that if you can just remove all doubt and if your faith is this strong, then the Lord will do what you ask him to do. It's, again, not putting power in our hands. But it's encouraging us simply to rest in the powerful, risen Christ. It's not focused on the strength of our faith or the content of our prayer. It's focused on the object of our faith, the generous God who is good and gracious in all he does and has power over all things he created and he sustains. And he loves his people in such a way that when they lift their voices in prayer to him, he hears and he answers. The power is not in your faith. The power is in the object of your faith. That, that's what's intended by the prayer of faith. R.C. Sproul, as he so often did, summarizes it in this short and simple sentence. The prayer of faith simply means the prayer of trust. Larry Wilson, who some of you know, also provided, I think, a helpful summary. Again, just one sentence when he said, when you pray the prayer of faith, you put yourself into Jesus' safe hands and trust him. In fact, by embracing this very simple practice of praying in faith, in trust, in Jesus, we participate in what some have described as the most radical act in the whole of the Christian life. You take all your joys, you take all of your all of your struggles, you take all of your cares and you give them over to the power and the presence of one who you cannot see, but one in whom you can completely trust. By the very act of prayer, praying by faith, we profess what we know to be true about the God that we love, that he is sovereign, that he's good, and that he's both of those things all of the time. You acknowledge when you pray that God hears you, that God is with you, and that God is for you. And you can do that, friends, with great confidence because you pray in the name and in the power of the risen Christ. Look at verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. One author has described prayer in this way, that the essence of prayer is opening your life to the risen Christ. Opening your life to the risen Christ. It's acknowledging that Jesus is the one who lived, lived for me, who died for me, who bled for me, who loved me in such a way that he provided for me salvation and forgiveness of sins by his life death and resurrection, it's acknowledging that he prayed for me and that he prays for me, that he ever lives to make intercession for me. The prayer of faith means putting yourself into the safe hands of Jesus. And with that in mind, then James describes the prayer of faith in four different contexts. First of all, he describes praying Christians. Look at verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. James asks three questions here, three different kinds of circumstance that all Christians face, times of suffering, times of joy, times 
of sickness. And in part, what he's saying as he asks those questions is that prayer fits every circumstance in life. There's no circumstance you face, no trial or no joy where prayer doesn't fit, where prayer isn't the the necessary response of the people of God. And yet we know in our own struggle with sin and temptation that often suffering or joy lead us away from prayer. When we suffer, we we are tempted to think that God has forgotten me. That God has abandoned me. We begin to question, is he sovereign? Does he have power to save and protect me? And in our deepest moments of trial, our darkest moments of suffering, we even wonder, is God really good? But also in the midst of joy, we're tempted sometimes to leave behind prayer. If life is so good, If it seems as if I have no cares that have not been met, I might convince myself that I have everything under control. I'm the master of my life. I'm self-sufficient. And what James is reminding us is that while these things can draw you away from prayer, they must always draw you near to God to reflect upward, to turn your gaze toward heaven, and to do so in prayer. James is saying prayer is always appropriate. It's always fitting. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it in this way. The one urge which should never be resisted is the urge to pray. So we should pray always. And then he gives us these questions. Is anyone among you suffering? Are you enduring a bad thing? Are you suffering in ways that are big or small? Are you suffering right now? In all of those circumstances, you should pray. One thing that James has taught repeatedly in this letter is that we should, as Christians, expect suffering. We should expect trials. We should expect persecution. He tells us that right from the beginning. And in the midst of such trials and persecution, he calls us to patient endurance, to steadfastness, but he doesn't call us merely to hold on. He calls us to pray, to grab hold of the risen Christ. James is inviting you by the power of the Holy Spirit who's speaking through him. He's inviting you to bring your deepest needs, your most difficult suffering to the Father of lights, as he describes him in chapter One, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the one in whom there is no variation and no change. The prayer of faith is essentially to claim God's promises, to know him to be faithful and good, to turn to your heavenly father and say, you promised, please do it. Now, those of us who are fathers know how uncomfortable that statement can be from one of your Children, Dad, you promised. When are you going to do it? You ask yourself certain kinds of questions. Did I really make that promise? I don't know if I I made that promise. Or I shouldn't have made that promise because now I have to keep it. Or I'm not sure I can keep it. But James sends us to our Heavenly Father, who always keeps his promises, who does everything that he says 
he will do, who never forgets his promises and who's always generous and he's never stingy. A few years ago, I was worshiping uh, at an Orthodox Presbyterian church on Long Island and uh, the pastor, Mike Plugman, who's no longer alive, but as he was uh, as he was officiating at the Lord's table, he was ripping off huge pieces of bread and handing them to people. Bread so large that there was no way that you could eat it in the time that you were given. And one of the members, as he handed him this big chunk of bread, said, Pastor, it's too big. And he said, Brother, the Lord is never stingy. He's always generous to his people. We serve a God who's always generous. And even when it seems as if he's forgotten us, James reminds us that if we draw near to God, he will always draw near to you. And so we draw near to God in prayer, especially in times of suffering. But then he asks another question. Is anyone among you cheerful? He has to sing praises. Now, maybe you're hearing that and saying, well, he didn't say to pray. He said to sing praises. And that's true. But if I could just encourage you in this way, if you're praying and it doesn't include praise, you're not doing it right. Prayer is filled with praise. In fact, in the history of the church, it's often been said that singing in worship, especially the singing of the Psalms, is harmonized prayer, vocalized prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Praise God. We could take that question and answer and maybe turn it into this statement in three parts. Cheerful Christians should praise God with singing. Cheerful Christians. James seems to suggest that Christians should be cheerful. This isn't unusual, but that all Christians should be cheerful because we have something about which to be joyful. A Christian should be known as someone who's joyful and cheerful, who smiles, who rejoices in the goodness of their God. Paul actually says in Philippians, rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. Cheerful Christians should praise God. If we are cheerful, if we do have reasons to be joyful, then it should produce in us praise. If you have a reason for cheer, and friends, if you are trusting in Christ and know his salvation, you have reasons to be cheerful, then you should respond in praise. When I was young, my parents would pray with us before every meal. This prayer, maybe it's familiar to you. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. By his hands, we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. That was like a liturgy in my life as a child to remind me that God is good and that everything I have, including the food on the table, is a gift from him. It's what we do when we sing the doxology as well. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That praise redirects our hearts. It tears down those idols that would tempt and distract us, and it produces in us joy as well. So cheerful Christians should praise God, but don't miss that it calls us to praise God by singing. Singing isn't merely an element of worship. It's not just a command. It's a gift, and it's a response of praise because our God is good. Christians should naturally, happily, excitedly sing praise to God. We had an old friend, Tim Russell, 
He went to be with the Lord a couple years ago, but he was a large man with a large smile and a large voice, and he loved to sing praises to God. And what was interesting is that he sang loudly, but he did not sing well. And he didn't care. Because he had the opportunity to sing praise to a God who loved him and who he deeply loved. And so we should be cheerful, praising God, and singing loudly. Because our God is good. So we see praying Christians, but secondly, we see in this passage praying elders. The third question in verse uh, 14 goes like this, is anyone among you sick? And then it doesn't say maybe what we'd expect. We might expect it to say, let him pray. But notice what it says. Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, we uh, can see some hints in the context of this verse that the kind of sickness that's described here is a, a significant sickness. He doesn't go to the elders. He calls for them to come to him. They pray over him, and they raise him up, maybe out of his sickbed as the Lord provides healing for him. This is a significant illness that, provides spe- that requires special attention, and it seems as if his call to the elders is an act of faith. They're a gift from God to him, and he calls them to come and pray over him in the name of the one true God. It's a reminder, this this call to the elders and them praying over him is a reminder to every Christian that you are never alone. In your sickness and in your prayers, you're never alone. It's really beautiful what's described for us in this particular voice uh, verse. The Lord's anointed servants the elders who are given as gifts of the risen and ascended Christ, anoint the sick person's head, symbolic of God's power, and they pray over him in the name of the Lord. And the Lord cares for them. The presence of these elders praying for this believer is a reminder that the church of Jesus Christ is a vital and visible sign that God cares for you. And I've been on both sides of this, both the one praying and the one prayed over. And the power is remarkable as God is at work in and through his church. You elders, and I would include deacons, as you have the privilege and opportunity to pray with those who are sick, don't lose sight of the glorious, glorious activity that you're taking part in in the name of the risen Christ. And those who are sick, take this opportunity. Ask that the elders would come and pray and anoint you and know the kindness of your God through his officers. But what about verse 15? It's a little bit perplexing, maybe. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. There's at least two things for us to wrestle with just for a moment. First of all, are you bothered by the certainty of what's promised in verse 15? In other words, as you read that, are you asking yourself the question, does prayer always lead to healing? Well, I think context helps us here in chapter 4 of James, verses 13 through 16. We're warned about presuming on God. We pray with confidence that he will do according to his will. That's important for us to remember. 
But the point seems to be, the point that James is making seems to be that prayer is powerful. Because the one to whom we pray is powerful. And we can expect that as we pray, the Lord will work in glorious ways. So we pray with expectation. Yet always in submission to his will, without doubting, as he said earlier in the book. Do you believe that God heals? And do you believe that God heals even through prayer? I have a friend whose father was very sick and has been sick for many years and eventually got an infection and he seemed to be on his deathbed. They were preparing for his funeral. The doctors had given up hope and then he was healed. In two weeks, he was as healthy as he'd been in years. And the doctor talking to the family said, I can't really explain what happened. And his wife said, well, many people have been praying And the doctor said, that's nice, but I can't explain what happened. And she said, again, many people have been praying. God does heal through prayers, and we can pray with confidence because we know God to be a faithful God. But maybe we're also perplexed by the connection between sickness and sin, healing and forgiveness of sins. We need to hold the scriptures in balance so we Uh, Maybe you remember what the Lord says in John chapter 9 as uh, this young man who is born blind is brought to him and the crowd asks Jesus, is he blind because of his sins or the sins of his parents? And what does Jesus say? Neither. But we should also remember Mark chapter 2, the story of the paralytic whose friends drop him through uh, the roof so that he can be seen by Jesus, and we're told that the Lord saw their faith. That's perplexing in and of itself. Their faith. And he forgave his sins. And then they asked Jesus, how can you say that you have the power to forgive sins? And Jesus says, does it take more power to forgive sins or to heal the sick? And of course they can't answer. And then Jesus heals him as well. And in that passage, we're reminded that God in Jesus is powerful to save. He heals us both spiritually and physically. And he cares for us body and soul. We see that in the language of this verse. It uses language that can describe physical or spiritual healing. He'll be saved. He'll be raised up, maybe from his sickbed or maybe on that great and glorious day when the the dead in Christ are made alive. And then he's forgiven. This passage acknowledges and holds before us a God who cares for our souls and he cares for our bodies. He's a complete Savior who cares for us in every way. And we can go to him with confidence and the elders can go with with us with confidence because God saves. So we have praying Christians, praying elders, then we have a praying church in verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There was already a transition in verse 15 from physical healing to spiritual healing. Now there's a transition from praying elders to a praying church. Again, reminding us that in our prayers and in our Christian life, we're never alone. 
This verse speaks about the whole church. Let's be really clear about this. This isn't a priest or someone who's a professional religious person who prays, but it's the whole church sharing and confessing sins and praying for one another with confidence in Jesus. And isn't that more powerful and more profound? A whole church filled with believers who are all praying, all priests in the kingdom of God, lifting each other before the throne of grace in prayer. That's what our churches should be like. That's what this church should be like, brothers and sisters in Christ, loving each other in such a way that we can share our deepest needs and even confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And the Lord works through that as we build one another up more and more into the image of our Savior. There's a book, I'm not sure if it's in the the church library, I have a copy of it and happy to let you borrow it. It's called The Korean Pentecost. It's the story of our missionaries in Korea, actually those same missionaries before the OPC even existed. And there's this, this moment in the life of the church in Korea, which was small at the time and not growing, where at a particular gathering of the church, somebody got up and confessed their sins in front of the whole church and they prayed for him. And then people started to confess their sins to one another, and they were praying for one another and asking for the Lord to bring wholeness and healing. And the church grew by leaps and bounds. We should confess our sins to one another, pray together as a reminder that we're never alone in the Christian faith. And as we do that in faith, the Lord promises to build and to strengthen his church. In verse 16, you also have this great promise at the end of that verse where it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Does that encourage you or does it puzzle you? The prayer of a righteous person. Who can claim that? Do you ever struggle with those psalms that say something like this, judge me according to my righteousness, deal with me according to my righteousness, vindicate me according to my righteousness? We hear things in Romans that say no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we wonder, can I ever claim to be righteous? But notice what Romans goes on to say. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the propitiation by his blood, through faith. So that later on in Romans, he can say there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ... You're righteous in him. And as you pray in Christ, resting in him as your perfect savior, there is great power in your prayers. Not because you're great, but because God is great. So we have a praying church. But lastly, as we close, we have a praying prophet. Verse 17. Elijah, it says, was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This, these verses have often perplexed me. I'm not sure that I'm always encouraged by them. Elijah? I'm supposed to be like Elijah. This is you know, the all-star team of prophets. 
He prayed and there was a famine. He prayed and there was no rain. He prayed and there was rain. He prayed and this one small thing of oil produced oil that never ended. But notice what it says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, it's saying essentially he was just a man. There were other times when Elijah was so distraught and felt like God had left him in such a way that there was no hope. And then he did what the only thing he could do. He cried out to God and God provided exactly what he needed. He prayed, he trusted in God and God answered with exactly what he needed. And friends, you pray to the same God. He calls you to do the same thing that Elijah did in your helplessness and in your weakness to cry out to God because there's nothing else that you can do except to trust in the power of your loving God and your risen Savior. And friends, you have something Elijah only could imagine. You have a risen Christ at the right hand of God who lives to make intercession for you all the time. And you can pray in his name. Prayer is available to each and every person young and old, male and female, everyone who trusts in Jesus. And when you pray, there is great power at work in your prayers because the God to whom you pray is sovereign and good and powerful and gracious all the time. And when you pray, your prayer is powerful because Jesus Christ lives. He was raised from the dead on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of God and he ever lives to make intercession for you and your prayer by faith is powerful because the holy spirit is with you always even to the end of the age so don't discount don't underestimate the powerful effectual prayer of a righteous person who trusts in Christ and don't discount or underestimate the prayers of a church filled with righteous persons who lift their voices in prayer together to our powerful and saving God. For the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's pray.